This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a live show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. Tonight's show is part of an ongoing series about living with life-threatening illness. My guest tonight is Pam Mullins. Pam is a therapist working in private practice in Boston. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in her mid-40s, which was 10 years ago. Welcome to Safe Space, Pam. Thanks, Ann. Pam, are you there? I am here. <laughs> Great. I can't quite hear you, so I'm going to turn I know. I'm mic. actually having a little trouble hearing you, too. Okay. Let's get that situated. This is the great benefit of live radio. <laughs> Oops, that was too much. Can you hear me now? Um, a little better, but it still um, has a little feedback, I think. But yeah, okay. Yeah, but that's all right. All right. Can you hear me enough to have this conversation? Yeah, I can hear you pretty well now. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, welcome to Safe Space. Thanks for putting up with the technical difficulties. Oh, no problem. <laughs> I want to... Technical difficulties is about what... Well, is about all about what MS is about, right? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> There's always these... I often compare it to sort of a radio station that's not coming in very well. <laughs> well, here you go. So yeah. <laughs> we're doing this live. This was meant to be. So... Um, Let's start at the beginning, actually. How, how did you first sense that something was not quite right, and kind of what was the story of how you got diagnosed? Um, well, it was um, actually um, very subtle things and relatively benign. Um, I think the first thing that I had was um, what they call a foot drop or a foot flop, and I would only get it, like, I would run, like, 13 miles, and my foot, my left foot would, like, hit the pavement too hard, harder than I wanted it to. And, um... So, this was, I mean, 13 miles is right. a long run. Would it be only at the end when you were tired? Or? Yeah. And so, I actually thought I just had a weak ankle. Um, but it, it got, like, then it would happen after 10 miles. Um, then I would run, like, a 10K and it would happen. So it was happening sooner and sooner. Um, and then I got other weird things. I ended up with a weird presentation of migraines, um, which was diagnosed at the time as cluster migraines. Um, I had them for one month, like every day for one month. So and cluster migraines are very, very severe. Right, and it was very hard to um, actually get any kind of a diagnosis. And I actually think now it was probably a flare in retrospect. Um, and then the following year I had optic neuritis, which is sort of a, traditionally a hallmark sign of MS. Um, and what, but, did, what does optic neuritis feel like? What, how did you know? Um, it cre I suddenly had a blind spot in my right eye. Um, so like, in the low, like the lower half of my eye um, was essentially not working. So what that does is it creates in your field of vision, it cuts off a part of your field of vision. Um, and it just suddenly happened. Um, and so I went to um, an, op an ophthalmologist and neurologist and um, got diagnosed with that and had an MRI, had my first MRI. But there was only one lesion that appeared on my brain, and it didn't fit the, diagnostic crit the specific diagnostic criteria for MS. Um, and that, so that was three years before my actual diagnosis. Wow, so we're talking about a several-year process because the foot drop was already more than a year before that. Yeah, that was probably, I probably noticed that five years before that. 
I see. So this has been, just getting diagnosed was a journey all in itself. It was. And what was interesting is when I did get diagnosed, it was because I was still running and having um, back pain. Uh-huh. And I was actually con- um, convinced that I was going to have to have back surgery. And so although uh, this diagnosis had been floated and was a possibility, I, when I went in to see the doctor, I was actually in complete denial that this would be the diagnosis I would get. And I was in shock when it when they gave me that diagnosis. <laughs> I see. So it was actually back pain. and Because I don't think of MS as necessarily being associated with a lot of pain. Tell yeah, it, it can be very painful. Um, in this case, I think um, MS um, causes sort of a narrowing of the um, spinal cord. And so that can cause pain in various places. Um, also, um, it can create pretty, for me, pretty painful muscle spasms, especially in my legs. Um, and especially when I'm tired. Um, and so um, those are sources of pain. But, you know, I think it's, a, it's such a variable disease for everyone. Um, it can range from a very benign um, course where people maybe have one or two flares and really never get anything again to very debilitating. Um, and it really depends where the lesions show up um, in a person's brain or spinal cord. Yes. So, so backtracking just a moment for you. So you, when you had the optic neuritis and you yeah. had this blind spot in your eye yeah. and you go in and they have an MRI and there's a lesion on your brain and they, yeah. they say it's not MRI because it's not enough lesions, presumably. Right. But nonetheless, here you are, you have a lesion in your brain. Yeah. Was that terrifying for you? Um, you know, at that point, um, <clears throat> it wasn't terrifying. It was um, bizarre. It was such a bizarre symptom, and um, it was my first MRI. It was like it was very interesting to me, <laughs> <laughs> and I think the um, doctor sort of downplayed the possibility of a diagnosis because I think at that point, this was in, in like 1997, there wasn't a whole lot of um, recourse, so I don't think there was an urgency to get diagnosed, and so I think even if he thought that it might develop into that, he wasn't sort of anxious to push that idea. So it was more um, a curiosity to me, and it also resolved itself over time. So I think I felt like, oh, that was a weird thing, but now I'm better, you know. <laughs> yeah, so it didn't haunt you. It didn't linger in the background as this terrible fear. Um, in fact, I think I repressed it more than, more than it haunted me. I yeah, mean, well, that's why they say denial can be very healthy, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think, um, you know, if I'd been diagnosed then, I would have had three more years of sort of grappling with that diagnosis as opposed to three years where I felt pretty healthy. So well, That's great. Yeah. So so then fast-forwarding to here you have this back pain, and you yeah. said it was really, it really floored you. So tell tell me what happened and how you got told. So I had sort of avoided, I had a busy schedule and, uh, and avoided going into the doctor and then finally went in um, um, right around the new year in January 2000. Um, and, and I actually went to my primary care first and I almost forgot to mention to them that I had had a foot drop in optic neuritis. I mean, they were sort of ready to set me up to see somebody from my back. And then I mentioned that and my primary care is like, oh, um, give me a second, <laughs> and I'll come back and talk to you. And mm. I think they knew completely from my sort of self-report what was going to happen. I and see. so then I went to a neurologist who pretty much already knew. Um, but I didn't. I still was really thinking I was going to have back surgery. Um, 
and she set me up for an MRI. Um, and so it was this um, very difficult time of having an MRI and then waiting for the results of that, yes. like over a weekend or a few days, and going complete, like my mind would go from, oh, my God, I have this, to this is impossible, I couldn't possibly have this, sort of cycling constantly through all the possibilities. And then when she told me it was, um, I mean, I remember that like it was yesterday, um, it was dramatic. Um, the doctor was there, my partner was there, and it was sort of the first time that I was in a doctor's office that I could see that she actually really cared about me in some way. And I think she felt terrible delivering this bad news, and there weren't, weren't a whole lot of options. So it was just sort of this, I think that's what was most striking, is there was a sort of humanness and a touch to it that I wasn't used to in going to a doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, I think I felt like, wow, I mean, I'm sort of completely alone with this. Um, there's not really anything that anybody's going to be offering me to do about this, you know. And um, I'm curious about that because I know there are treatments for it. They, there are. When you said there's nothing they can do about it, how how did you get that sense? Um, I knew there was nothing to fix it. Um, oh, to, she, to cure it, to take it away. She did offer me a treatment, um, which I did go on. But I knew at that moment that, like, um, I'm going down this path and, like, nobody's going to um, be able to stop me from going down this path. Yes. So. Right. So, so in other words, even though there was treatment, you knew that it wasn't going to stop it or right. take it away. Right. right. Yeah. So, so there's this simultaneous experience of feeling for the first time in a way that your doctor really cared as a person. Right. But also this feeling of being very alone. Yeah, right. Both things at once, yeah. And um, so you are in still in the same relationship with the person who was with you? Yeah, my partner, um, we've been together since um, 1987, so we had been together about... 12, 13 years before then, and, and we're still together, yeah. So she's been with you on this journey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, <clears throat> how uh, how was it for you two to talk about it? I mean, here you are. But it impacts, of course, her tremendously Absolutely. also. Absolutely, yeah. How, was that hard? Well, it's an interest, it's been a very interesting process because she's in the medical field. She's a physician assistant, and she works in orthopedics. <clears throat> But she's in the medical field, and um, so um, both she and I sort of research the medical aspects pretty carefully, and she has sort of the background that I don't have that helps a lot. She also helps me navigate the system, which is no small feat. <laughs> yes. Um, and, but I think, um, so in that way it's very, very um, helpful. And she also gives me my injection, um, which I don't think I could do by myself. Um, so in very pragmatic ways, it's it's um, really important. And um, having a partner, going through this with a partner is huge, I think. I think it would be, for me, it would be very hard to navigate um, by myself. But I think the way that it gets hard for us um, is that I think sometimes she gets over-involved in the medical part, and um, um, 
if I want to make decisions that are um, different, it can be um, difficult for us sometimes. We struggle with that, you know, with whether, with who my doctor is exactly. And, I can understand And I that. try to avoid doctors at all costs, so it's easy for me to rely on her. Um, so um, it, that can make it complicated at times. Yes, but, and can, it get, can it also get confusing in terms of, um, if she, you know, has something to offer you concretely, yeah. But but can it does it does it difficult in some ways to to remember that she's your sort of emotional support primarily, right? Um, but I actually think the emotional support does come from a lot of the pragmatic things. Uh-huh. Say more about that. Um, just knowing that there's somebody that I can that, who can help me figure out um, how to make an appointment with this doctor or that doctor or how to deal with the insurance, or that's huge. The other, the other way that she is a huge emotional support is um, she's the only one that knows the day-to-dayness of this with me. Um, it's impossible for people to, to get the, the sort of day-to-dayness of this because it's so, it can be so subtle and so variable. Um, well, even so, even having said it's impossible, <laughs> I, I'd love to ask you to, to try to help help me get a feel for it. Sure. You know, I'm thinking about things like you know tying shoelaces, or you know, are there uh-huh. like just give me some of those mundane daily ways that it impacts you. You know, it's a very um, hidden disease um, for me. For some people, it's 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 very visible if they're you know in a wheelchair or something. But for me, it's um, very hidden. So unless I tell people I have MS or unless they see me at the end of a long walk, um, they wouldn't know that. Um, and so it's, it's mostly an inner dialogue about sort of what's happening in my body at any given moment. So like this morning I woke up and my neck was stiff. And, I, and so the immediate thought I have getting out of bed is like, oh, am I going to have a stiff neck all day? And it went away. But... You don't, you know, it's sort of like that's, I sort of am constantly scanning and sort of seeing what's happening. So there's this degree of uncertainty. Always, yeah. I mean, I think um, it's interesting because it gives you, for me, I have physically some balance problems, but there's this degree of uncertainty that always sort of keeps me psychologically a little, um, always um, vigilant and out of balance a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I can I can understand that. Yeah, you know, you obviously you were running 13 miles uh, right. several years ago. Are you able to go running now? No, um, I think that's been. Um, I was always an athlete, and so I think that's been in many ways the hardest thing is is um, losing that in some way. Although that's still very much a part of my life. I think when I was first diagnosed. The weird thing about it was it wasn't so much that I was coping with any particular symptoms because I still felt pretty healthy, but it really dramatically changed, um, altered my sense of self. And at that point, it was mostly just in my mind, like, well, who am I? Because I was always an athlete. Right, um, so your sense of self was in your sense of your body as right. strong and reliable. Very much so, yeah. Yeah, how, so how has it changed your relationship with your own body? I'm sorry, say that again? So how has it changed your relationship with your own body? Um, Did you feel betrayed by it? You know, it's not, um, the other, not so much, not betrayal. Um, it sends you... Or for me, it sent me so much inside of myself and sort of there is a way that with something so chronic that becomes so interwoven in your life 
that it becomes a part of you. I mean, just, you know, I'm five feet tall, and I've always lived with being five feet tall, you know? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. sort of, so it becomes a part of you in the same way. So it's not so much that um, betrayal would sort of feel like I'm looking outside of myself in some way. Yes. And it, it just is. Um, but I think it's very important to me to find ways to sort of keep working out and to keep doing things. But I have to be easier with myself because I can't sort of do athletic training and um, build on that, which is what I used to do. Yes. I mean, that brings up feelings of loss, I presume. Yeah. Has there been, do you feel like grief has been a big part of this experience? Um, I think grief is a constant part of the process. And I think what's hard about it is that what you're grieving keeps changing always, you know, Um so it may be, um, it's never, like I never know exactly what I can do or what I can't do or where my limit exactly is until I hit it. And it changes. Um, one day it can, I can hit my limit pretty quickly. Another day it's not there. And how do you um, know? How do you know when you hit um, your Only limit? by um, doing my life. <laughs> <laughs> you just, that's the thing is you just never know. I mean... Oh, what I mean is, how do you know when you've hit your limit? Like, for uh, you, does your foot start dropping? Are, are there yeah. markers you've developed inside? Um, it can, I can feel real fatigue. I mean, it depends what I'm doing. Um, it's, I wrestle with it a lot going for walks, so I still go for long walks. But now I use a cane when I go for a walk. And sometimes I can walk three miles, no problem. Sometimes I can walk one mile, no problem. And what happens is I'll get the foot drop or I become very uncoordinated. Um, huh. It really varies. Um, and ha- have you ever felt fallen? Have I ever what? Fallen. No, I, ha- I haven't. I mean, I use a cane, and, so- and a couple times I have caught myself from falling with the cane. Um, it would be that I, if I fell, it would be um, from tripping um, over something. I find that I much prefer, like, flatter and flatter surfaces are are um, more important to me now. Navigating cracks in the sidewalk and stuff can be more difficult as my legs get a little clumsier. Yeah. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Pam Mullins about living with multiple sclerosis. So, you know, we've been talking about grief and daily losses. Yeah. I also imagine that kind of a long-term loss is the sense of, uh, you know, how it impacts your sense of the future. Um, it, it, it does. It, it definitely impacts the sense of my future, and it's curious to me to watch how it does that because what happens is I don't particularly go there. I mean, um, I think that all of us as able-bodied people live with this illusion that we can somehow predict our future or have control over our future, and really we don't and i think with ms that gets exposed you know yes <laughs> um so i make plans you know i make my schedule and i plan on living my life and i'm pretty much can show up to do that at this point but i don't sort of predict into the future um there is a progressive component to this disease and i think after 10 years i can appreciate that that's the case but i don't um my mind just doesn't go there, which is really interesting to me because that before I was diagnosed, I think I was always sort of worried about the future. And, um, but it doesn't go there. It just it puts me back in the day um, 
without sounding cliche, it puts me back in the day and just really wanting to live my day. It's so striking, isn't it? So what you're saying is that before you had MS, you worried more about your future, and now that you have MS, you worry less about it. That's right. Which is really unexpected. Yeah, in many ways, um, I mean, I think having an illness um, and being thrown into that, um, it really does make, like, when I feel well, I don't take that for granted. I really notice it and appreciate it and um, love it, you know. And I think um, pre- before that, I was used to feeling well and always took it for granted and um, didn't appreciate the gift of that at all. So know? in a way, it's, it's you have more gratitude in your life. Yeah. Right, that's really striking. Yeah. I mean, one always you know, hesitates to suggest that there might be a gift in something in a terrible diagnosis. Right. But it sounds like that, in fact, has been your experience, at least at some level. Yeah, I think it's, I actually think it's been a pretty major thing for me. Um, and I, and um, I always hesitate to say that too. And it's certainly, it's not a Pollyannish thing. It's a very profound thing. Um, but I think it really reinforces the idea that all you have is the moment right in front of you. And um, what it makes me feel like is I want to live fully the moment that's right here. Um, and there's constant reminders of that for me, you know, that, that my body could be threatened in some way and that, and that so all I have is this moment and I want to live it. And I don't think um, without that kind of, without bumping up against that, that I had that perspective when I was healthier. It almost reminds me of almost like a Buddhist practice where you come back to the present. You kind of very keep much so, getting yeah. reminded to do that. Only you have these very concrete physical reminders. Right. Very much so. I mean, I think, um, you know, I've read a lot of Buddhism and I've done a lot of work with existentialism around this. And I actually find that it's been very, um, that's been very much of a huge support for me. Tell me about the link with existentialism. Um, it's the same thing. I think, you know, with existentialism, um, they talk, one of the principles is that you have to choose your life, like really choose your life. And I think that, um, that through finitude, through knowing that things end, through um, coming up against that, that it's imperative that you choose what's right in front of you. And so I think that that is very much a way that I live my life at this point. It really uh-huh. sounds that way. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, you practice as a psychotherapist. Right. And which, so obviously the people that are coming to you are in some form of struggle in their life. Right. And has your own experience with MS changed the way that you work? I think so. I mean, I, it's hard to say that for sure, but I know that my own experience constantly informs how I'm thinking about what my clients are going through. So... I think I sort of, um, you know, the whole idea about choosing where they're at is is something that I think I frequently go to with them and inform and inform by. I think the way it sometimes gets in the way is sometimes, like some of my clients know that I have MS. Um, probably most don't, and I think sometimes I get a little smug about thinking I'm struggling harder than you are. <laughs> 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 um, and I notice that in myself, and and um, 
maybe it makes me feel better, but it's not particularly <laughs> helpful for the therapy. <laughs> <laughs> right. When you have, right. If it makes you less compassionate, right, or more right, impatient. Right. Yes, of course. <laughs> Every yeah. therapist fear. Right. <laughs> yes. Do you ever find yourself telling someone to kind of use your experience as a way to connect with someone or to help them? Um, I would, um, but I haven't, it hasn't happened yet. Um, I haven't worked with a lot of clients who have disabilities. It's just they haven't sort of shown up. Um, and at this point, um, if I felt like it did help me connect, I would share that. But I think it 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 mostly feels like it would probably be a distraction and more about me. Yeah. Um, but if if that happened, I would share it. Um, but I haven't seen that yet in my practice. I can imagine that if if I was a patient with MS, that it would actually be very comforting to see someone. Then I might share it. The the tricky part about that, um, I haven't worked with anybody who has MS. Um, I might share it at that point, but the tricky part is um, people's experience with MS can be so different that it would partly depend on what my client's experience was and... Right. So if like you were doing a lot better and had fewer symptoms, I mean, right. that, that co- the comparison can actually be quite painful. Right. It could be very painful. So Yes, I can yeah. understand that. How yeah. about in your own personal life? It sounds like um, you walk with a cane, so that's a visible marker, but it sounds like you can pass. Yeah, I don't walk with a cane most of the time. I only walk with a cane when I um, go out for a long walk. So in my regular life, I'm not using a cane. And when you, so when you were first diagnosed, how did you decide who you were going to tell, and what was it like to tell people? Huh. Um, I think I, I told most people in my personal life, and my partner, um, she told a lot of people, um, which was fine. She, you know, needed to talk about it with people, um, and I think mostly I shared it with people. I think what was hard initially was um, feeling like people didn't really understand what I was going through, and probably that's where I felt my anger, um, was um, feeling angry at sort of how they were reacting or how they were responding. And, you know, by and large, people were trying to be very well-meaning, but if they sort of said something that was a bit off or didn't quite get it in some way, I would... I think that's where my anger came out. I would sort of hold it against them. Yeah, I actually want to understand this because um, I imagine there may be some people listening who know someone with MS and don't want to make that same mistake. Yeah. So what were the kinds of comments that people made that were really unhelpful to you? Um, I think sometimes they'd be way ahead of me. Like, that's great that you have a private practice, so you'll be able to keep doing that. And that's true, except at that point, I wasn't anywhere in that space. Um Offering treatments, um, people get really invested in thinking that you should do something specifically that they think would work. Yes. Um, and it wouldn't, it might or might not be something I wanted to do, but, um, and, you know, again, they were really trying to be helpful, but um, it might not be my choice to do that. Um, and then I think for people to not, sort of not appreciating, and I think this is very hard to appreciate, is just how... Um, this is a very ongoing, consistent thing. It's not a snapshot. It's not, um, and it's not, it doesn't even have a predictable course. So people would say, how are you? And it's like, do you really want to know how I am? Because that would 
take a while to really tell you that. Um, and so that part was hard. And also I think sometimes for some people they just saw me as, it changed who they saw. They saw me as like this giant MS coming at them as opposed to me as a person, I think. I see. So it almost became like a filter. They saw you through yeah, that yeah, lens. And yeah. and if so, did they, I mean, did you feel like that made them treat you with pity or how did that affect? Um, they would just like sort of, sometimes people would just sort of lead with that, you know, how's your MS, how, you know, or something like that. And just in ways that, um, that I couldn't quite hold in some way that, that, um, it would be this, just the first thing that they would think about me. Yes. Um, I can imagine saying, no, no, remember this, I'm right. this, I'm this, right. remember right. my strengths. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's hard to feel, uh, defined by something that's limiting. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I know that, um, you know, one of the, one of the impacts that MS can have is on mood and depression. And I yeah. wonder, has that been part of your experience? Um, again, it's been kind of the opposite for me. It can definitely have that effect, and, and, uh, and it also depends on where the lesions are um, in your brain, um, you know, what areas of your brain it affects. So for some people, I think that's a profound part of the disease process. Um, for me, um, I think I lived with sort of prior to getting diagnosed, sort of mild depression for most of my life. And I think, again, sort of realizing that all I have is this moment sort of um, pushed me out of that. And so I've actually felt um, much less of that since I've been diagnosed, which I know is paradoxical, but... It is, and it's also a wonderful note. We have to stop, Pam. I suddenly realized. Thank you so much for being my guest today on Safe Space. This has been Pam Mullins talking about multiple sclerosis. I did ask you for a resource that has been helpful to you. Do you have a website or an address that people... I do. I have a couple. Um, The NationalMSSociety.org, so that's all one word, NationalMSSociety.org. And they also have local chapters and do a lot of activities, um... And so if you get on their mailing list, um, and then msif.org um, is an international foundation, and I get a um, weekly email from them about research in the field. Wonderful. I'm going to have to stop you there, Pam. Thank okay. you so much for being my guest. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, this is uh, Dr. Ann uh, at Safe Space. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks.